This morning, we are in Romans chapter 1. We're going to be in Romans 1. We'll be reading in verses 18 through 32. As you'll see soon, I encourage you to have your Bibles out because we're going to be spending a lot of time uh, in the book of Romans today. Romans 1, being 18 through 32. And I'm going to go ahead and just start reading. You can check out overhead as well. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For, they, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. You may not know this, but the worship team keeps track of every song they sing. It's easy to do this when you have an actuary like Robin Howarth, who has spreadsheets on such things. And I found in talking with Robin that the seventh most popular song we sing at Grace is a song called In Christ Alone. It's that one, In Christ Alone, that one. And this struck me because not that long ago, I had come across an article titled this, In Christ Alone Dropped from Presbyterian Church Hymnal Over Lyric Dispute and Scriptural Debate. Basically, the Presbyterian Church USA wanted to include in their hymnal the song In Christ Alone, but only if the songwriters changed some of the lyrics. And this is the change they wanted to be made. They wanted to change from On That Cross As Jesus Died the wrath of God was satisfied to on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. 
Now the love of God is magnified on the cross, but the, the writers did not want to change this lyric. But it brings up the question, why was this such an important issue for the people on the hymn committee? Well, one issue they said was that they just think talking about the wrath of God being satisfied makes God sound like some ruthless pagan deity who needs to be satisfied, you know. But there is a general sense, general trend I've seen in all churches to downplay God's wrath. It's for at least a couple of reasons, a couple of assumptions we make. First is, if we talk about wrath, don't we kind of sound like obnoxious, mean, angry, self-righteous Christians? We don't want to, we don't want to witness like that. And <clears throat> if God is a God of wrath, he can't be a God of love at the same time, right? And since his love is probably more attractive than his wrath, maybe we should downplay God's wrath. So it's worth us asking as a church, should we downplay God's wrath? When we talk about it together, should we speak in whispers? Should we not sing in Christ alone anymore? Should, not, should I not even be talking about this with you right now? I think this is a really crucial question for us to ask, especially in this, our third week in our series on the attributes of God. We're looking at a study on the character and the attributes of God. Keith talked about how if we're going to know God better, like anyone else, we need to know some things about him. And then Gene talked about the allness of God, how God is all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful. And I was given the week on the wrath of God, right? Easy, easy topic. Well, if we're going to answer this question, as you might expect, we need to spend some time looking at how does God talk about his own wrath? How does scripture address the wrath of God? And I think there's no better place to look at that than in the book of Romans. Romans, which we've already read from a little bit, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Christians in Rome who were actually experiencing conflict, ethnic conflict, between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And Paul's writing to help them sort out this conflict. And maybe ironically, he talks about wrath 11 times to help with conflict resolution. Far from downplaying God's wrath, Paul actually emphasizes it in talking about it so much in this letter. And I think what we find is we're going to walk through Romans, not all of Romans. I'm just going to pull out different parts. In Romans, we're going to discover this to me big idea, that when rightly understood, God's wrath makes us better people. When rightly understood, God's wrath actually calls us to be better people. And I want to show how he does that in three ways. The first way is that he actually calls us by his wrath to become humble rather than judgmental. Let's go back to the first verse that we looked at. It's the first time the word wrath is mentioned in the book of Romans. Verse 18, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So why does God experience wrath or what we might call intense anger? Because humans suppress the truth that he has given us. How do we do that? Well, he uses a word exchange multiple times. We exchange God's truth for lies we tell ourselves. Like what? Well, he gives us a couple of examples. If you look in these, this passage, we first, we exchange the truth that God, the creator is God, 
And instead, we tell ourselves lies that God can be whomever we want God to be. In modern language, it would be we each have our own personal spirituality where we get to choose who God is. The second way in which we exchange truth for a lie, he says, is in relation to sexuality. Instead of seeing the truth that sex is a gift God created and he made for human flourishing within the context of a man and woman in marriage, we tell ourselves the lie that we determine with whom to have sex and when to have sex. So what does God do? What is his wrath in relation to what we do? You may have noticed as I was reading that passage, he uses the word delivering them over or giving them over. He repeats that three times in verses 24, 26, 28. What God's wrath is, is it's delivering us over to the consequences of our own unhealthy decisions. He lets us see what it's like to have other people and other things as God rather than him. He allows us to see what it's like to practice sexuality however we want. He allows us to see what it's like, he says, to have a corrupt mind, which leads to struggles like envy, gossip, pride, greed. Those are all things he mentions in chapter one. And all this giving us over to basically live as we want and experience the consequences results in verse 32 with what? Death. Physical and spiritual death. Now, chapter one, for as hard as it is in some ways to read, as uncomfortable as it is to read, I actually think is an example of how God's wrath makes us better people because God's wrath calls us to be humble rather than judgmental. Specifically in chapter one, it calls us to be humble in our relationship with God. Because a lot of us, if we're honest, we don't like saying things like, or hearing things like, the wrath of God is revealed. We like phrases instead like, you do you. You ever said that to someone? You do you. I looked it up in the dictionary. This is actually a phrase in the dictionary. It's a phrase used to say that someone should do what they think is best, what they enjoy the most, what suits their personality. It's being one's true self. You do you. And I recently came across an article this week about a church that was making plans to, in a way, enact you do you. In the UK, the Methodist church voted to accept same-sex marriage and to affirm cohabitation. What this means is they're saying that they affirm, we talked today about language of open and affirming, they affirm both same-sex relationships in their churches and people living together and having sex. Um, regardless of, of their gender. And they said they do this because they believe it's the loving thing to do. Now, when they do this under the guise of love, they are unfortunately doing something Paul warns against if we go back at verse 32. Verse 32 of chapter 1 mentions that there are people who not only do the things that were mentioned in chapter 1, they applaud others who practice them. We may want to be loving and we may want to be humble. And I have friends who are cohabitating and neighbors. I have friends and neighbors who are in same-sex relationships. But Christian love is not the same thing as being affirming. Christian love is not the same thing as applauding every decision a person makes. Christian love is self-sacrifice in the way of Jesus. 
Christian love is staying up long nights listening to someone and their struggles with sexuality. Christian love is giving our lives for someone. Christian love is not applauding every decision our friends make. And if we do that thinking we're being loving, thinking applause and affirmation at all decisions is our way of being humble, we are ironically becoming judgmental. Why do I say that? It seems strange. Because we are judging God for his standards. We are saying, God, I know better than you do what leads to human flourishing. I know what's healthy sexuality, not you. And when we more and more take this perspective, we do what C.S. Lewis saw a generation ago. He said, the ancient man, the ancient person approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man though, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock or the witness stand. Lewis is saying, when we basically say, God, we get to determine standards, we get to determine ethics, we become the judge and God gets put in the witness stand. Instead, when we see wrath and we see what God's upset about because it hurts human flourishing, we actually can become humble rather than judgmental of God. Now, this is not where Paul ends when he wants to critique being judgmental versus being humble. If you go into chapter two, he brings up another way in which God's wrath calls us to be humble rather than judgmental. And in chapter two, it's not being humble towards God, it's being humble towards one another. Read with me the first few verses of chapter two. I'm gonna pick out a few here. Verse one, therefore, in other words, in light of everything I just said in chapter one, therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Notice the repetition of that phrase, do the same things. Verse three, do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things, yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Verse five, because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment is revealed. What is Paul saying? He's saying, if you're a Romans one Christian, if you love Romans 1, you're saying, yes, God is God. We need to listen to him and what he thinks about life and human flourishing. He wants you to say, watch out that you're not so focused on other people and how they live. That you're not first looking at yourself and your own struggles and your own sins. Because if we're honest with ourselves, each of the things mentioned in Romans 1 are things that we all struggle with. Every one of us makes other things into God, makes ourselves into God rather than God. Every one of us at one time or another has sexual struggles dealing with lust. For some, it's dealing with pornography as they surf through the internet. For some, it's the fact that they are in an emotional affair or even step into uh, physical affairs with other people. And all of us, I mean, if you really get down to the end of Romans 1, all of us deal with the corruption in our thinking that leads to relational struggles. Who can't say that they are not guilty of things he mentioned like greed and envy and pride and gossip? Let us not be so focused on the public, easy to see sins of other people that we are not seeing our own hidden sins in ourselves. We may be good at not judging God, but maybe we're not so good at not judging other people. 
A great example of this to me was what I saw on the back of a book that I own. It's called Dangerous Calling. It's a book written to pastors, and it's about how dangerous it is to do what I'm doing right now, to tell everyone what the Bible says and how to live, but to not look at yourself and at your own stuff. And it struck me that on the back of this book, there are, you can't see another one of the names, there are three names of pastors who wrote blurbs for this book and since writing them have either had an affair, have walked away from the faith, or have been so abusive to their congregations that they were fired. These people may have been Romans 1 Christians, but they were not Romans 2 Christians. Which brings up the question, where, where do you need to hear the message of God's wrath? Are you someone who needs to be humbled in your relationship with God and you need to say, God, I recognize I've been telling you what to think rather than letting you tell me what to think? Or are you more someone who needs to hear the message of Romans too, that God, man, I've been speaking truth, but I haven't done so in a way that's actually focused more on myself than on other people. When rightly understood, God's wrath makes us better people because it helps us to be humble rather than judgmental in our relationship with God and with other people. There's a second way God's wrath makes us better people that I want to look at today, and it's that God's wrath leads us to be saved rather than abandoned. What do I mean by this? Well, I mentioned earlier that sometimes we downplay God's wrath because we're afraid that if God is a God of wrath, then we're going to lose the God of love in the process. And we don't want to use lines like the wrath of God is satisfied in Christ alone because, again, it makes God look like a moral monster, like someone who is not a God of love. Steve Chalk, uh, an English theologian, wrote this about his similar concerns he has. He said, the fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. Chalk is saying, if God's wrath is something that's been satisfied on the cross through Jesus's death, then this is telling me that God the Father is a cosmic child abuser of an innocent uh, Jesus, God the Son. Is Chalk right? Should we be slow to sing this song anymore because we're singing about cosmic child abuse? Well, I don't think so. I don't think we should be downplaying God's wrath when it comes to the cross. And I say this because ironically, I believe if we downplay God's wrath on the cross, we will unknowingly also downplay the extent of his love. Why do I say that? Because if God is a God of love, but does not experience anger towards sin, injustice, hate, racism, greed, anger, or, you know, anger that shows itself in murder, then is he really a God of love? Don't you get angry at those things because you love people? And if we downplay the extent of God's wrath, we will lose the extent of God's love because unless we know the desperation of our state as people who God in his wrath has left to experience the consequences of our own actions, we will never see how amazing his grace and love is in his death on the cross. We can't really sing amazing grace and mean it unless we know what we were saved from and how desperate our situation was. 
And whenever we're in a place where you may have had this happen, where you hear people talk about salvation and being saved, and your heart really isn't touched by it, and it just feels like more Christianese, that may be happening because we have downplayed God's wrath so much that being saved doesn't seem that amazing because I'm a relatively good guy. I don't need to be saved from very much. Tim Mackey from The Bible Project, though, helps us to see the desperation of someone who has just been left to see the consequences of their own actions. He says, I don't want to be given over to my basest desires. That would be terrible for me and everybody around me. Just imagine your deepest, darkest desires unchecked, not being saved from that. That's what we're talking about here. And as we continue in Romans, I'm going to ask you now to move to Romans 5. Remember, we're walking through the book of Romans. Paul lays out for us the condition, the desperate state of someone whom God has said, okay, you want to live life the way you want to live it, go ahead. This is what he says about someone in that situation. We're going to be in verses 6 through 11. In verse 6, he says that person is helpless. Verse 8, that person, they are sinners. Verse 10, they are enemies of God. Paul is not downplaying God's wrath. He's emphasizing it, showing the situation, the natural state of our lives when our behavior is just left unchecked. But he's doing this. He's, down, he's not downplaying wrath because he wants to highlight God's love. Look in these same verses, the context of what he says. Verse 6, while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, verse 8, Christ died for us. Verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And why did he do all this? Verse 8, to demonstrate his love for us. And in verse 9, to save us from wrath. We don't want to downplay God's wrath, his anger and injustice and sin and all the ways we destroy our world and our own lives. Because in doing so, we would lose how great his love is for us in rescuing us from all this. Now, you might think, I'm glad I'm saved from myself, but I'm still kind of worried that God is a cosmic child abuser. You know, you didn't really wrap that one up, Dave. You kind of threw that on us, and now I'm a little freaked out. God the Father is a God of cosmic child abuse? Is that true? Well, the reason I think it's incorrect, one of the reasons it's incorrect to say that God is a God of cosmic child abuse, is it assumes that God is divided around what he wants to do, that we have this angry, malevolent, vicious God the Father who wants to spitefully beat up the loving, tender Jesus, God the Son. But when you actually look in Scripture, God as Trinity, as Father, Son, and Spirit, experiences wrath towards all different types of sin. Jesus, in Mark 3, experiences anger. That's the language used for the way that the Pharisees are damaging people's lives. And at the same time, God as Father, Son, Spirit is loving enough to want to rescue ourselves from ourselves, to rescue the world from sin and remake it, and has done that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and the giving of the Holy Spirit to his church, to his people. Now, it's true that on the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? 
But what that means is he was freely choosing to experience in our place God's abandonment due to his opposition to sin. And just before he gave his life, he knowingly did it. He prayed in the garden before he died. My father, if this cannot pass, this cup of wrath cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And in the greatest example of why God in Jesus was not forced to die for us, but willingly chose out of his love, we see this summary of Paul. Let's see how it talks about the way Jesus wanted to lovingly give his life for us. Paul says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself. He wasn't forced to. He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Instead of downplaying God's wrath. I believe when we see it for what it is and how it leaves us in a place where by ourselves, left to our own devices, we can just ruin our lives. By seeing it for what it is, we can see that it calls us to be saved from ourselves rather than abandoned. And therefore, it can make us better people. A final way, I want to close with this, a final way in which God's wrath makes us better people is that it makes us loving rather than vengeful. This might be surprising to you because if we're supposed to be imitators of God, if we're supposed to be like him, and God experiences wrath, intense anger at times, aren't we going to be just become more angry people? Aren't we going to become more wrathful and venge vengeful? Actually, quite the opposite, according to Paul. Again, move with me to Romans 12. We're going to be in Romans 12, and we're going to be looking in verses 10 through 19. Here, Paul says, in light of everything I've told you so far about times where God gets angry, this is how you should live. And I'm just going to pick out different descriptors for how we should live in light of God's wrath. Verse 10 of chapter 12, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Verse 18, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. Verse 19, do not avenge yourselves. This is not an easy list of ways of being with people. If you've really been hurt by someone else, blessing them, loving them, living in harmony with them, it is not easy to do. Why is Paul telling us to do it? Well, look at verse 19 again. He says the reason why and how. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. What he's saying is because God is a God who will ultimately bring about justice by his wrath, his opposition to the ways humans destroy the world, we can be freed not to hate our enemies, but to love our enemies and hand over to God the job of making all things right and pursuing justice. This was really important to the Roman Christians in ethnic conflict. It's really important to ethnic conflict today. And therefore, it's important to every church from the first century on, because every church has conflict, including ours. Every church has things that we need to forgive one another for, including ours. And that's why 
coming in the fall, we're restarting discovery classes. And Jean's going to be teaching a discovery class called You're Sorry, So What? And it's all about conflict resolution. And Jean's going to look at passages like this in which, depending on a God of wrath, on a God of justice, to make things right in the future allows us to love rather than get revenge. Now, you might think, wait, why can't I just love people without wrath being involved? Why do we have to talk about revenge? But if you're thinking that way, it may mean you've never really been sinned against to such a degree that the only thing you can lean on is for God to bring about justice. Miroslav Volf, who is a Croatian Croatian theologian, uh, was someone who had his father uh, go through a concentration camp experience where he was tortured. And Volf talked about how much he and people in his community needed to depend on God's vengeance and God's wrath to not themselves seek out vengeance towards others. This is what Wolf says. Sorry for the small print. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Imagine speaking to people as I have whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them that we should just not retaliate? Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. Wolf is saying, You must live in a really safe life to just say, oh, you don't need to be able to make things right. You don't need justice. If you've really gone through the things that he talks about in his community, the only recourse left for you is to say, God, I will bless those who persecute me because I know you will one day bring about justice for those who have been hurt and brutalized. A book I'm reading right now by an African-American theologian speaks a similar tone about the ways in which he and his community have often relied on the Bible and on the promise of God making all things right in the future to love in the present. Esau Macaulay writes, Christian eschatology, which is the teaching about what God's going to do in the future, it breeds compassion. Many years into my Christian life, I still feel the anger, but the cross and the reality of God's power have changed me. So for Macaulay, again, he looks to the future and God making all things right to in the present be able to love his enemies and bless those who persecute him. Now, you might think, well, wait a minute. Does this mean I can't seek justice now? And the answer would be no. And this is the last time I'm going to ask you to move in your Bibles to another chapter. Chapter 13, we have been given by God an agent, an instrument of wrath. Verse 13, chapter 13, verse 4. And it's the ruling authorities, the government. For government is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. In other words, we can appeal in the here and now to government to make things right, but we often know that government does not. And in those moments, God's wrath makes us better because it reminds us that he's going to handle vengeance. He's going to handle making things right. We can be freed to love our enemies like Jesus did in the present. Now, finally, you might think, well, isn't God telling me then that just do as I say, not do as I do? Why can't I get angry? 
Why are you telling me to do all this love and blessing of other people who persecute me? God's getting angry and wrathful. Why can't I? But we need to remember what God's wrath is really like, who he's really like. Exodus 34 says, the Lord is slow to anger. And therefore, we are called by James to be the same. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. God's anger, and remember this for this series, and remember this as this sermon in the context of this series. God's anger, God's wrath, it's always informed by his love and his goodness, his patience, his kindness. Our anger doesn't always get informed by those things. Sometimes it's just straight up selfishness. So God is instead saying, be slow to anger, follow my lead, and be free to love, because at the end of the day, I will bring about justice in the end. So, in closing, I'm going to go back to the question I started with and have been asking repeatedly today. Should we at Grace downplay God's wrath? Should we not really talk about it much? Should we not sing about it? And I think Scripture's answer is not if we want to become better people. Not if we want to be humble rather than judgmental in our relationship with God first and with other people second. Not if we want to sing Amazing Grace and really be grateful that we are saved rather than abandoned by God. And not if we want to be people who seek love of others who've hurt us rather than getting vengeance. Those are the sorts of people we can be when we remember that God's wrath is simply an extension of his love for this world that we often damage, but that God, through Christ, is reconciling to himself. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard topic to talk about. And I just pray for the people who are here that your spirit would use the words that we read to be able to meet them where they are, that if people are struggling with, with your word, with anything that we read from, with anything I said, that, that it would be something that could lead to further conversation, further thinking, that we might just be faithful to you in how we think about your world and how we think in our lives. And I pray for people who may think of God's wrath and it may throw them off and lead them to forget about your love and patience and kindness. And please help us all to be balanced, to see that you are one God whose anger is simply a byproduct of loving this world so much that you don't want anything to damage it. Help us as disciples of Jesus to become more like you and set us free by your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.